So everybody stay standing and we'll give another minute for our kids. It's kind of the first day for some, so we're going to let them wander on out of here. And uh, I just, you know, I'll, I'll just say, I, I love uh, adult baptisms um, when people profess their faith and are baptized, but especially, you know, what moved me about this morning and about Addie was you know, she's, she's six years old, and she's standing in front of you declaring that Jesus is her Savior and Lord. And I think, I hope it was a great day for Addie, but man, what a day for the rest of us. If, if she's willing to make that declaration, then uh, what a challenge for us to think about how we're bearing witness um, to who Jesus is in the world uh, and in our lives. So, uh, uh, grateful for your presence. Let me pray for us as we come to the reading and the proclamation of God's word. Lord, we, uh, we celebrate today. We thank you for all the, the babies that are being born and for the young families in our church. And, and yet, Lord, we also recognize we are a multi-generational congregation and that our young at heart ministry uh, is every bit as vibrant and active as our children's ministry. And so we celebrate that today and what that means. And Father, I thank you again for Addie and for uh, her witness um, to her faith, the challenge that it presents to us. But Lord, we also acknowledge that, that faith is not always easy. In, in fact, a lot of times it's hard. And there are things that confuse us. And there are moments in which we feel that we walk in darkness. And so would you help us understand those today, especially for people who are in that moment right now? And they're here. Would you come and speak, oh God? Lord, I pray that you would take this sinful, broken man and Lord, overcome my sin that you alone would be honored and glorified today for we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. The word of God today for which we stand from the prophet Isaiah chapter 53, verses 1 to 6, and then verses 11 and 12. Isaiah writes, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds, we are healed. Verse 11, after the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession 
for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord today for you, his church. May the spirit come and indeed illuminate our hearts in whatever place of darkness we may be this day. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So every once in a while you come across a story that you find uh, particularly compelling, not just because of the nature of the story, but because of what it represents to a larger degree, because of the questions it raises. And that was the case for me when I came across a story uh, out of Budapest, Hungary, and the 2021 Athena uh, World Aquatic Championships. It's a swimming, world swimming championships. And there is a woman there named Anita Alvarez. Anita was an Olympian in 2016, Olympian in 2020, and she competes in a discipline called artistic swimming. So it's like synchronized swimming, only you're by yourself, right? It's a solo sport. So in that sport, you spend most of your time upside down. So your, your body, your torso is pointing down beneath the water, and then it's what you do with your legs above the water that is artistic and what gets judged, right? So for even the most highly conditioned athlete, it is a grueling physical experience, and that's what happened to Anita Alvarez. She said, I came to the end of my routine, and she said, I I knew I didn't feel good. I felt myself floating down, and then she said, I blacked out. That's the last thing I remember. Now, officials who were there that day said what happened to her, she fainted from exhaustion. But the problem was nobody saw it. She came to the end of her routine and all the authorities, the lifeguards, the officials, they thought she was fine. So they were looking at other areas of the pool. Meanwhile, Anita is just drifting farther and farther down into the pool. Nobody saw her except one person her longtime friend and coach, Andrea Fuentes. And she jumped into the water. Here's a picture. Jumped into the water fully clothed. And I didn't, I'm not showing you the whole picture, but I love that photograph because you can just kind of make out Anita who's on the ground and her coach, man, she's like superwoman. She is a woman on a mission. And she is going right towards her. And Andrea said, you know, it went by really fast for Anita because she didn't really know what's happened. But she said, for me, everything went by in a shot. Now, here's the thing. You can take that down. This story has a happy ending. She was underwater. Anita was underwater for two minutes. But they got her out. She coughed up the water. She's 100% fine today. And she said at the end of it, she said, I'm just so glad that she's my coach. You think? I mean, can you, you imagine you're, you're a swimmer and, and you've blacked out. You're just, you're just in the darkness and nobody sees. You're just alone. Nobody sees except that one person. That one person, your beloved friend, your coach, and that person's always had your back. And she dives in and she saves you. Can, can you imagine their friendship today? Can you imagine the bond that they now share and how Anita feels about her coach? So I, I love the story, but people, that raises all kinds of bigger questions for us, doesn't it? Because we'd all love, I would love to have that kind of person in my life. I would love to have someone that I know always has my back. 
I would love to know that there's somebody who's always gonna be watching, who's always taking care of me, always watching out for me. And maybe you have that kind of person. Maybe there's an experience in your life where you kind of didn't know what you were doing or maybe you got out of bounds and someone had your back, someone protected you. But I wonder how many of you today have that, have that 911 person who you know no matter what, they always have your back. They're always watching. They're always gonna be there. We'd love to have that person, but here's the thing, you and I are, are smart enough to know. I mean, no, no human being can have our back all the time. There's no human being who's gonna be able to watch over us even when the darkness comes. So what does that do? That moves us into the spiritual realm. And we can say to ourselves, oh, I'd love to have that kind of person. And some people fill that role, but this is where faith comes in. Oh, I've got my faith in God. God is my protector. God is watching over me. God has my back. Psalm 121 says, he who watches over you will neither slumber or sleep. And so we know there's never a time where God is off duty. There's never a time when his eyes are closed. There's never a time when he doesn't see what is happening in your life. And we say, yes, I wanna believe that. I believe that's true. But then see the problem is, that the older we get, the more the evidence begins to pile up that seems to contradict that. And we say, oh, I, I think God's got my back. I think God's gonna watch out for me. But meanwhile, our loved one still dies. Our relationships still break apart. Our children still struggle. And that little lump that the doctor said is nothing turns out to be cancer. And we wind up with our arms wide staring up into heaven and saying, wait, Lord, you said, you said you never slept. You said your eye was never off of me. So what is this? Do you not see? Are you sleeping, Lord? Do you not? You not care? St. John of the cross called it the dark night of the soul. Those crushing spiritual moments when you can't find God, when it feels like he's abandoned you. Martin Luther described it as those moments when a Christian encounters the left hand of God. I love that. The left hand of God. Scripture describes it over and over again, similar to St. John of the cross, scripture uses the term nighttime or darkness. When you're in those moments where you can't find God, you're confused, it's always night. And you and I know what it feels like sometimes to just be in the darkness of night. David writes in Psalm 130, he says, out of the depths or out of the pit, my heart cries out to you. In other words, David is in a place that's so deep. He's in a pit so deep that there's no light. And so in verse six, he says, he, uh, in verse six, it says, my soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. So David is in a place that's dark. And in the same way that watchmen yearn for any sign of the dawn, David is looking for just a pinprick of light that would indicate that the Lord is still with him. He's longing for that light to come into his life. And you and I often know what that feels like. 
the anxiety and the fear of darkness. When we're in those places, we tend towards despair. We tend towards desperation. Anglican priest Tish Warren writes, the darkness of nighttime amplifies grief and anxiety. The feeling of being very, very vulnerable. The unchosen vulnerability that we all carry, whether we admit to it or not. We're vulnerable. As human beings, we just are. And I love the word vulnerable because it comes from a Latin word which means to wound. See, as human beings, there are times when we're exposed, where we're woundable, where we can be hurt. And when we are, in our, in our hearts, we wonder, where is God in this? And so what I'm talking about this morning, I told you a little bit about it last week. What I'm talking about this morning is called theodicy. T-H-E-O-D-I-C-Y. Theodicy is a defense of God's omnipotence and goodness, even in the face of evil or deep human suffering. So we can be in a situation where all the evidence would seem to suggest that God is nowhere to be found, that God has abandoned us, that God's not doing his job. But a theodicy is a defense of his omnipotence and his goodness. It's our time to say, oh, no, no, God is here. And this is why. And people, this is so important that we as Christians mature and understand the answer to this question. Because if God's not with us in the darkness, then God can't be trusted at all. In fact, the number one reason why millennials have left the church is because they've never been able to rectify those two things. If God is good and loving, why does so much suffering and evil exist? And because they can't answer that question, because no one's ever taught them theodicy before, they're out. Well, there is a good answer. And we're gonna talk about it this morning. And I'll tell you, I bet there are a lot of you who've either been there or you're there right now. There's not a week that goes by that someone is not in my office and they're wrestling with this very thing. My life is in a pit, things are not good, and I'm just trying to understand, where's God in this? How do I find him? And so that's what gets us to Isaiah chapter 53 this morning. Now, chapter 53 is a text that you're probably gonna be somewhat familiar with because we always read it during Lent, right? It's the clearest prophetic expression of what's gonna happen in the life of Jesus of anything we have in the Old Testament. It is the suffering servant. And what's amazing, it's written 700 years. 700 years before Jesus ever comes, Isaiah says, here's what's gonna happen to the Messiah. And a lot of times Jewish people overlooked it because degradation and humiliation were not what they thought was gonna happen to the Messiah. They expected an earthly king a king of power, right? And on top of that, this was a time in the life of Israel that was one of her three great dark nights. The first one, her slavery in Egypt. The second, her exile underneath the Babylonians. And the third, her exile here under the Assyrians. She is in exile. She's been separated from everything that matters, her relationships, her worship, and so she's wrestling in fact, she's defiling the name of God because she's saying, I don't know if God can get us out of this. 
Israel is wrestling with her own theodicy in her own darkness. Where is God? And what is God doing? And how is God doing it? And so as we try to understand it, as Isaiah speaks into Israel, there is incredible truth and blessing that I pray that God will open to us this morning. First thing out of the gate in chapter 51, Isaiah offers almost a joyous shout about what God is doing behind the scenes, how God is at work, how God is moving, even in the darkness. And he uses the metaphor of God's arm. So if you've read the Old Testament at all, you know that God's arm was often the way in which uh, he was described in his movements and his activities and his power. And so I love how Isaiah builds up to it. He starts off in chapter 51 and he says, the prophet says to God, awake, awake, clothe yourselves with strength, O arm of the Lord. So Isaiah sees the darkness of his people and he goes to speak to God on their behalf. And he says, God, wake up, get in the bullpen and loosen up your arm." right? He's saying, get ready, look at your people. It's time to act. And then in chapter 52, this people is one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. Just listen. It says, the Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of God. People, this is a verse that is brimming with the bravado of God. This is God walking into a bar and whipping up his sleeve and showing his bicep and looking at all the nations and saying, anybody want this? You wanna come now? Here's what I'm gonna do. And I'm gonna show you my salvation. God, with all this confidence, this bravado walks in and he says, just look at my arm, you're not gonna mess with me because I am the power. And then in the chapter we read, chapter 53, verse one, Isaiah says, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is not a, a timid question where Isaiah is going, hmm, I wonder who, who's the message been revealed to? Who's seen the arm of the, that's not it. It's a rhetorical question. After chapters 51 and 52, Isaiah is saying, how do you believe this? Can you believe it? The arm of the Lord, who are we? That the message would be revealed to us. We've seen the arm of the Lord. And so Isaiah is encouraging the Israelites by saying, maybe you don't see it. Maybe you don't understand it. Maybe you can't perceive it. But that arm, that arm laid bare is at work right now in your life. And we remember yet again, we cannot forget in the darkness, what we knew to be true in the light, that God is able, that God is sovereign, that God is powerful and at work in your life, even when you can't see it. So when you're in the darkness, when it feels like there's nobody there, you go back to Isaiah 52, that God is laying bare his arm for you. And just because you can't see it or feel it, does not make it untrue. He is at work in your life, in your darkness. Secondly, if he's at work and he's moving, where is he moving? Well, Isaiah 53 verses two through five, tell us that, where is he moving? He's moving into our darkness. 
You know what? You don't want to know what he's doing. He's coming to be with us. Verse two says, he grew up before him like a tender shoot. What does that mean? It's the incarnation. It means that Jesus, the suffering servant, is gonna grow up out of the dirt of the earth. He's gonna be of the earth. He's gonna be entering in to our pain, into our darkness, into our suffering. Psalm 34, verse 18, it says, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. This is the foundation of our theodicy. Where is God in human suffering? Answer, he is mighty, he is at work, and he is with us. He has moved towards us. He has moved into our darkness. And then in the next verses, he illuminates just how far into our darkness he's willing to go. Verse two, it says, he had no beauty to attract us to him. He had no, there was nothing attractive in him at all. And in that, he's entering into the darkness of every human heart. Our fear, the darkness that we fear that we are not lovable, that we're not worthy, that somehow you and I in this life are unattractive, that nobody will wanna be with us, that nobody will wanna care about us. Jesus comes into that darkness and those fears. But then you have to pause and go, wait a second. How was Jesus lacking beauty? And it says he had no beauty. There was nothing that would attract us to him. So what's the opposite of beauty? Ugliness. Jesus, the suffering servant, he comes in utter ugliness. Why? Because of Isaiah 61. It says he will give to you a crown of beauty instead of ashes. So the suffering servant takes your ugliness, the darkness and the ugliness of your sin, and he gives you his beauty. He gives to you his righteousness because he was willing to come into your darkness. He goes on, it says, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. He entered into the darkness of our relational brokenness, our fears of being rejected, of being abandoned. And then he suffers everything that we could possibly suffer in this life. Then it says he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. He enters into the darkness of our physical illnesses and diseases, places in hospitals where you lose your human dignity and all the pains of our physical bodies. He says, I entered into the darkness of your infirmities until finally it says he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Having come into our darkness, having entered into it in its entirety, he's then crushed in order to overcome it. And so friends, this is where we have to change our thinking. We have to change our mindset away from this false idea that sometimes we readily accept that God is just always gonna protect me. He's gonna, if I'm faithful, he'll just put a little bubble over me. That, that's just not true because it wasn't true for Jesus. Jesus got crushed. Now, understand here too, understand he's, it's not that he's not gonna protect us at all. I don't want you not to get that either. What is mercy? Mercy is not getting what you actually deserve. And people, I have no doubt that the only time you will fully understand everything that God has prevented from happening to you, all that you should have had happen to you that you deserved and you didn't get, you'll only figure that out 
in the next life. God is protecting you all the time. But he says, I'm not going to keep you from all of it. Why, John 16, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. He says, I've overcome the world. And so right there is where our, sh- our thinking has to shift in the darkness. If you're in the darkness, we have to stop thinking about our circumstances, and we have to start thinking about the life of Jesus. Why? Because your circumstances never dictate your standing before God. If things are bad in your life, that doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. And if things are good, it doesn't mean that God just thinks you're the greatest person in the world and you have no sin. Neither of those things is true. So what do we do? We start, stop thinking about what's happening in the darkness. And we start thinking about the life of Jesus. Tish Warren writes, God did not keep the bad things from happening to God himself. Our hope in sorrow is not something we carry around like a brute fact or worse, a pat answer. I don't come to trust the Christian story in the same way I trust that Lake Superior is the largest of the Great Lakes. No, the story we live by is the one that we somehow enter into. We discover our own small lives and stories in the larger story of God and his church. See, our darkness and our pain is lived in the presence of God. And as we dwell there in that place, we identify more with what God and Christ went through on our behalf. We start to understand and appreciate the nature of the story, what our redemption required of God. And we understand even the value, the redemptive quality that suffering can offer. Then third, and this is brief, but how do, we, how do we endure the darkness? All right, so God has a mighty strong arm. It's moving even when we can't see it. It's moving towards us to be with us in our darkness. It's part of the story of his redemptive work in our life. But still, we have to persevere. We're still sitting in the darkness. Notice in Psalm 33 or Isaiah 53, there's no request that the circumstances change. It's just, God, come be with me. So when we're in that place, what do we do? Well, the biblical answer over and over again is we pray. Right? Psalm 30, all the psalms of lament, what are they doing? In hardship and in darkness, they're crying out to God. But the problem with that is when you're in the darkness, sometimes you don't know what to pray. Sometimes you run out of words. And Tish Warren says, over a lifetime, the ardor of our belief will wax and wane. Inherited prayers and practices of the church tether us to belief. When my strength waned and my words ran dry, I needed to fall into a way of belief that carried me. I needed other people's prayers. Okay, you, you know why we have this prayer room? It's because after church, sometimes you don't know what to pray. And so you come and you try to find other people's words. You ask for the elders to give you their words. Or you ask me to give you my words. Or you go to words that have been given to us in Scripture. You pray the Lord's Prayer. And you just pray through it. You go, our Father. And you think about the word our, and you go, wow. I'm in community. I'm not by myself. He doesn't say pray my Father. He says pray our Father. Why? Because you're part of a larger community of faith. And then the word Father is the word Abba, which is this this tender kind of slang expression for Daddy. 
and you reflect on the tenderness of God for you, you, you pray the Lord's Prayer or you pray the Psalms of Lament or there are books that are filled with beautiful prayers, the prayers of the Puritans, the Valley of Vision. I'm telling you, the Episcopal Book of Common Prayer, go get that. I have one in my office. It's awesome. Really good stuff. I'm writing a sermon last week and I'm going nowhere. It happens. And so I just stop and I go to my book of Puritan prayers and in that book, there's a prayer and the title is A Prayer Before Preparing a Sermon. And I went, I know where I'm going. And I prayed that prayer and off I went. We pray the prayers of others and then finally, we have to remember how the story ends. In the darkness, you remember Isaiah 53, 11, and 12. He writes, after the suffering of his soul. After. After. What does after tell you? That eventually it ends. There will be another time. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life. The light dawns. The watchman sees the morning. God's light will pierce your darkness. And then he says, my righteous servant will justify many, which means the suffering servant's suffering was not pointless. And this is what our culture fails to grasp today. They believe that there's no purpose in pain or suffering. The gospel says otherwise. The gospel says that God is always going to use pain and suffering redemptively. And it began in Christ because through Christ, you got justified. Through Christ, I got justified. So Jesus sits at the right hand of God today knowing that his suffering was worth it because God used it for the salvation of many and in the same way. Your suffering one day, your darkness will be caught up in the larger redemptive plan of God, which makes it all the more amazing. Heaven would be great if you'd never suffered. It'd be fine. But it's all the more significant because you did suffer. And yet God in Christ was crushed and then overcame it on your behalf. Francis Spufford writes, we don't have an argument that solves the problem of a cruel world. But we have a story. This is why no matter what we claim to believe or disbelieve, what rises to the surface in our most vulnerable moments is inevitably the story on which we build our lives. People, I, I can't give you a cogent, scientific, proven reason why Suffering and evil still exist in the world today. It's a broken place and we run into it. And I don't know why God hadn't stopped it yet. I've got some ideas, but I don't have anything like that that I can give you. But what I can give you is a story. And in the end, you see, the story is our theodicy. The story is the defense of the omnipotence and the goodness of God. Because there was a creator God who out of love made you because he just wanted to be in relationship. Didn't need you, but he wanted you. And then we came and we chose to be our own gods. We said, no, thank you. And the result of that, we live in in the world today. But God then enacted creation, fall, his plan of redemption. A tender shoot grew up out of the earth. It was Jesus. 
He was crushed for your iniquity in order to rise above it so that ultimately one day all things will be restored. That all these things, even in your darkness today, you will overcome your grief and your sadness and your loneliness. And you do it in the presence of the living God who endured it all for you and is now with you. C.S. Lewis's, and I'll finish with this, C.S. Lewis's, probably his best novel is called Until We Have Faces. And the, the primary character is a woman named Oriol. And she has, a, she has a horrible life. She's born in utter ugliness. She has nothing that is attractive about her at all. And as she grows up, pretty early in her life, her mother dies. And then not much long after that, her, her very best friend, her little sister, she dies. And so she goes before God and she complains loudly and vigorously. Where are you in this? And God comes to her in a vision and he doesn't speak. He just shows himself. And here's what she says. I know now, Lord, why you utter no answer. You are yourself the answer. Before your face, questions die away. What other answer would suffice? Only words, words to be led out to battle against other words. Since the first human drew breath, Maybe a little after that. Words have been written and spoken about where is God in the midst of all the mess. And my sermon today has just added more words to that. And it's not that the words don't matter. They do. Because it's where we struggle. But I think at the end of the day, our theodicy is not so much about words. But our theodicy is about a person that when we simply look into the face of Jesus and when we see his glory and when we see the dried blood that he sweat upon his face and when we see the scars that still remain in his hand, our questions really start to die away and we realize that Jesus is our theodicy. Jesus is the answer because it's the story of what he's done for us in Christ. So I pray that as we look less at circumstances and darkness and more at Jesus, that your questions, though legitimate, will begin to fade. And your faith and your trust in an ever-present redeeming God will grow and you will mature in your faith in him. Let us pray together. Lord, we, we've opened up a, a pretty big uh, question today. Pretty big conversation. Hard to cover it in 30 minutes. But Father, I just pray your spirit would, would multiply and use 
these last minutes, that they would expand in wisdom and understanding, that they would grow in the hearts of these hearers, that they would grow and mature as love for you, as deep understanding, as comfort in the darkness, because indeed, you never sleep, you never slumber, There's never a moment where your care for us falters, regardless of what our circumstances may be. For your great and mighty arm, let's move for us in Jesus into our darkness to overcome it and to welcome us once more into the light of life. It's in the name of Jesus we pray.